0: Healing can happen when people share their stories. Welcome to Trauma, Trial and Transformation. Discover true stories from those who were called to sit in the witness chair. Experience their journey through the legal process and beyond. This podcast brings to light the trauma and stress caused by testifying under oath and offers resources by talking with witnesses, key litigators, and mental wellness professionals to assist with different approaches one can utilize to prepare to take the stand and how to heal after the encounter. And now, here's your host, Juliet Huck.
1: Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Trauma Trial Transformation. Even though it's sunny in LA, my heart is really full and I should say broken, over the news in Lahaina, Maui. Uh, I spent a lot of time there, lived in there a short period of time out of college, and this weekend's been really interesting to, to sort through my own personal feelings about that island and the trauma that everyone's going through. So I hope that you'll find a way to donate, especially to animals, people that really have lost everything, and um, just give ourselves a moment of, to be grateful for what we have every day. Aloha spirit is something very unique, and I can't help but think of the trauma that they're all going through and any ways that we can try and reach out to help. So if there's a way that you can give back, please find a way in your heart to, to do what you can, even if you're miles and miles away. So that said, today, with a bit of a heavy heart, but I do have to say today, I've spent the weekend researching my guest today, and boy, what a story. She has extensive experience in what I would call self-examination. I don't know if I've ever been able to say that about somebody before, but boy, that's just, I think that's how, like the conclusion I came to her over the weekend. She was convicted of a white-collar crime, thinking she would spend like probably a year in prison, get probation, but then she got the maximum sentence of seven years in federal prison. While in prison, she was inspired to take a moral inventory of her life, really look at how her words, actions, behaviors, and choices impacted others in her life, especially her family. But she's now rehabilitated herself in an amazing way, which we'll talk about later today. She's a writer, photographer, and an advocate. She now works with at-risk youth and women struggling with addiction. She recently self-published a book called Living Louder, a compassionate journey through federal prison. I want to welcome Portia Louder. Welcome, Portia. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Julia. It's a
2: it's an honor to be here. I'm excited
1: to have this conversation. So Yeah, well, as I started before, there's nothing to me in this world of self-reflection, which is a very difficult thing to do, to look at yourself and see all of our flaws and instead of walking through life and acting like we're all perfect. So I'm I was excited to talk to you about that today because you fit my you fit the format so well. So it sounded like, you know, without going too far back, your life was just really stacking up. You relapsed on being addicted to prescription drugs. You had multiple kids at a very young age. You then fell into real estate and had the stress of really large real estate deals. And then the FBI shows up. Now, I know there's a lot more in between that, but I want to kind of jump to to where your life is going and you're working and you're heading. And then the FBI shows up. Like, what in your what happened when that they uh, popped in.
2: <laughs> such a heavy time in my life. You know, looking back, I would like to think that I would have done it all different because I, I really believe that, that I could have made choices along the way that would have created a different outcome. But living in the fear and the gravity of my situation is hard to describe to anyone unless you've just been there. Mm-hmm. And you know, I had life events leading up to that. Uh, I was a single mom young. I had all of these things that led me to think that it was kind of me against the world. And so, you know, when the FBI started investigating me, in my mind, I'm like, you can't take my life from me. I've worked too hard to get here. You can't Mm -hmm. have it. Go look at the banks, go look at, you know, all the other investors that are doing worse things. I just had all these reasons. So I was, you know, not taking ownership of where I was, but also just terrified and zero trust. You know, I, there is no way that I was going to trust these agents or the government to help me through this process. Mm And I would have, I would have just said, okay, this is what I did. Let's let me own this and let's figure out what I need to do to move forward. But that is not what I did
1: at all. Oh, wow. So, so, you know, today, as we talk through this, you know, there, there is this blurry line I think in general as we're seeing in society today just in general of choices and the law right there's there's the choices we make and then there's the law and this blurry line lately has been happening who's above the law who's not above the law did you know where the did you know where the line was I've had to really
2: and like you said examine myself from a different standard so to speak like Instead of looking at it as, did I know, you know, because that's kind of where I was. I was like, at that point in time, no, I didn't think that, you know, they had advertisements about people pulling cash out of houses and reinvesting that money. So, Mm -hmm. you know, did I think that, but that it was illegal. No, but did I absolutely feel that I was going down the wrong path? Did I question, was my integrity breached here? Yeah, I did. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. And that's. You know, so that's where I'm like, it isn't about, I mean, believe me, I was sitting in prison and watching, you know, presidential elections and questioning, like, wait a second, why is it that everybody else gets to break the law and I'm sitting here in prison?
1: Well, I would imagine.
2: (laughs) Yeah, frustrating. But uh, at Mm -hmm. the same time, it's not about what anyone else does. My the way I feel about myself comes from my own integrity you know it's my integrity that empowers me and so getting super honest with myself was became important to me and that is kind of my standard now it's not about what other what the law says is wrong it's about what i know my personal integrity when i know well, i'm off track
1: that's a great way to say it it's it's not about anybody else it's it's mm-hmm. what you you know that's why when people well, ask sometimes well how do you work on this case and i'm like well there is a line of my own. What's my intention? What's also my feeling around it? Do you ever feel like what intention also plays a part of that?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I I do. And I think it gets really confusing when it comes to the law. Um, It shouldn't be, you know, but for me, for me, it does. And so, and I'll give you an example, you know, later on when I got home, Um, And probation wants to make sure that you're on the right path. And Mm -hmm. I remember telling my probation officer, I said, just so you know, like, I don't not use drugs because you tell me to. I don't for myself. I don't Mm -hmm. keep the rules for you. I do it for me. (laughs) Like, I just want, there's something bigger in my life that keeps me on the right path. Because... Yeah, and I appreciate that you guys care, but I care more about myself. So I'm, you know, I do it for me, not you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's. uh, I think that's what I would term as self love. There's some self love here that's uh, that sets the boundaries for yourself, and we're talk about that bigger thing that drives you. But you know, I heard in one of your interviews, you made things much harder for yourself than you needed to. What did you mean by that?
2: You know, there was this period of time, years. From the time that I started hearing that I was under investigation, like 2004, 2005. This went on for so many years. And I, I feel like I made a mistake and then I made that mistake so much worse by the way I responded to it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to make a mistake is one thing, but to deny the mistake and then fight to the death, trying to convince yourself and everyone around you that you didn't make the mistake. Is like the biggest waste of time and energy, and it just took me in the wrong direction.
1: Which is kind of what we're seeing in some level today, politics right. and personal. Oh. I mean, you know, just to sit back and without getting too far down that rabbit hole. But right. you know, when, when do you stand up and just say, "Yeah, I I did yeah. it, and I'm I screwed up," yeah. and it's, I've never understood why. Why I shouldn't say I never understood because there, I've been in that situation where it's hard to really say that you screwed up. But you know, I also saw that you felt. You were imprisoned before you went to prison. What did you mean by that? I thought that was an interesting statement.
2: Yeah. Well, I had made these choices that had imprisoned me in so many ways. You know, by, again, my own personal integrity. I had imprisoned myself with financial decisions, with debt, with fear. I had, you know, I don't remember ever noticing a sunset or a sunrise or noticing anything around me. I just carried so much weight and it took a while in prison to realize that there was a way out of this internal prison that I had created for myself. And, you know, I just, I felt very victimized and I think that is a difficult place to be because you do, you feel imprisoned by other people. It's like, if I'm, I remember this thought <laughs> It came to me. I was sitting there one day and I thought, hmm, if I'm going to be waiting for the government to come and apologize for everything they did wrong, it's going to be a long wait. Mm-hmm. I might figure out <laughs> what I did in this case. I'm the only one that can change this. Like, Because they're never going to show up and say, hey, oops, hey, Miss Louder, we really screwed things up. That's not going to happen.
1: Right. You know? right. And it's so. ownership. It's It's taking that ownership and taking that. That place where we tend to probably imprison ourselves in ways that, you know, the finding that freedom, that self freedom, is is very hard to do in this world today, especially. But when you say everyone, and I also was reading, and we're going to talk about more about court in a second, but because we're talking about the trauma side of this, when you say everyone is traumatized by the courtroom, that was another statement that I just was like. Oh. I could see that so well. And we're going to talk about trial here in a second. But but, where what, what did you mean by you were traumatized by the courtroom? You
2: know, I don't know anyone that isn't. For me, as a person that was convicted of a crime, I was sitting there in this very sterile room. And I remember feeling like this out-of-body experience as I was watching the lawyers go back and forth and the judge. And then I just... I can't even tell you how completely alone and low I felt. It was just mm-hmm. like I am worth less than the paper on their desk. I have zero value at this point, and it was it was a surreal feeling to me, um, and one I never want to feel again. And I, you know, I had the opportunity to talk and actually teach a class in prison, and I wasn't alone in that. Everyone that I had talked to there, but I also had an opportunity that a man came in who his son had been killed by a drunk driver and he talked about his courtroom experience and his frustration with the system. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, obviously the perpetrator, the person that did this was a, was very painful for him because he said that his, the man's daughter came up and said, you know, how could you do this to my dad? And he's like, I'm standing there grieving the loss of my son, all of the weight of this. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, he's like the, the political part of all of it just frustrated him. And I think it's mm-hmm. that way for all of us. The courtroom is just so traumatic and painful.
1: And that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is that how can we help it be less? Can we? There's ways, you know, that that I'm working on that I can hopefully try to add some softness in areas, you know, by meditation preparation before you go in. What are you doing to heal afterwards? Self-forgiveness. But when you have to also relive trauma like the, the father you're talking about and go in and Scarlett Lewis was the, one of the mothers from Sandy Hook was on my podcast and she had to relive Sandy Hook, right. which is just still to, you know, to be on the stand. And I just feel like it's how do, how can we make it somewhat, especially someone who's a victim, right. you know, let alone, but, you know, even if someone is coming into court and they are accused of something how is it that you actually can understand what's going on? How do you understand that you have your rights? How do you understand things that the average person off the street, let's talk about that. So did you have a public defender or did you have, did you hire somebody? No, I had, I started out with, I I had paid lawyers
2: (laughs) until I drained myself financially. And then, you know, they brought in an an additional lawyer for me, the government did, but, and then that's confusing because Mm -hmm. You know, I had an attorney in the beginning that said, "You know, let's go meet with the the FBI." So we go to meet with the FBI, and I walk in, and there's just a whole table of people, a lot more than we expected. So my lawyer pulls me out, and says, "Uh, I thought this was going to be small, but it's bigger than we thought." And I and I go, "Well, what do you want me to do?" And she goes, "Well, just tell the truth." So they asked these questions, and a, kind of the path they were on wasn't correct. So I said, "Well, that's not what I was doing." And then one of them pounds the you know table and. Do you have any idea what you've done? And I looked at her and I was like, it was just the whole thing was really difficult for me. So we leave and she, I I try to call her and she goes, "That was the worst meeting ever." You know, I've been sick to my stomach. I'm like, "You're my lawyer. I need your help right now." You know. <laughs> your know? strength. You're losing like, it. This isn't working. So I end up You know, and at least looking back, I'm like, okay, so she was kind of honest with me that I was in some trouble, you know? Yeah. So then I found another attorney that would tell me you did nothing wrong, nothing wrong. You're fine. You know? And right up till the end, I'm like, wait a second. I remember looking at him and saying, but I think I did do something things wrong. He goes, don't ever say that. (laughs) You know? I mean, it's like, (laughs) I'm like, who do I trust? Who do I trust? You know? So the whole process leading up is just so scary and in mm-hmm. the end, I had an attorney that said, you're probably going to serve five years. And and then I got really upset about that and I let him go. So this is on me, you know, and another lawyer came in and said, ah, you'll get probation. And I think deep down she knew I was going to get some time, but she just knew I didn't want to hear that. And so right. you know, at some point you have to start hearing, you have to confront the facts, you know, mm-hmm. and it took me a while to do that. And it's a difficult spot for a lawyer to be in because we don't want to hear that. But mm-hmm. it, you know, we make things, I made things a lot worse for myself in that process. I drained us financially because I really thought that I was fighting to the death. Like, I really mm-hmm. thought there was no hope for me if I went to prison. Like, that that's not something I can recover from. It's just so scary. And mm-hmm. I was wrong. But I, you know, at that point in time, it was just
1: the biggest fear for me. So, yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that's a... Uh... So let's, let's talk about trial. Let's, let's talk about, you know, as we're talking about walking into the courtroom here. So, so the first time let's talk about the, before we get to the, you know, the sentencing, the first time you walk into trial, like, right. Are you still at home? Or are you in jail or?
2: No, I, I was really fortunate. I was able to just go in and, and plead and I was on pre-trial release right up. So I was going to trial and I, three weeks before my trial, the government revoked my pretrial release and put me in detention Mm. and then mental evaluation. And that's when things got pretty shaky for me. I also talk about trauma. I also witnessed three weeks before my sentencing. So right in that same time, um, there was a man in a courtroom next to us that was shot by the U S marshals. He stood up and had a weapon. And so the Mm. marshals come through and I I witness all of this and then I'm, I'm my pretrial release is revoked. And so there was just so much trauma going on at that yeah. point in time, even before I was sent. it. So it just got and really confusing.
1: And there was, I mean, a reason why they revoked it? Is there a reason why they, you feel like they were so harsh on you?
2: Well, it was a combination of things. One, you know, I, I walked outside and I did an interview with the press about that particular mm. event, which made the FTC really upset. So they're like, wait, mm-hmm. we want to be ones to address the media. And you chose to walk out and say that this man was shot without us being able to address it. So that was one of the reasons, Mm -hmm. but I had been really belligerent and difficult as well, you know, Mm -hmm. and they were just over me and I don't Mm -hmm. blame them. I look back and think, how could I have been so foolish? I just, I really was not, um, I, I was not owning my part in all of this at that point.
1: Right. And ownership is, you would say, probably one of the biggest, I I mean, I would, I would think in not only in prison, but in parole hearings and things like that. I think they want to see some type of ownership from a genuine perspective, right? Yes.
2: Well, ownership is freedom. I mean, that's where your power lies. If you can completely accept, you know, that acceptance that I did this, no matter where you're Mm -hmm. at, I chose this. I did it. It was my my choices that led up to this event. Then there's a new place to stand and start moving forward, but it took me a long time to get to that. That's
1: that's that's a tough thing to do. You're peeling back all those layers of, you know, what's happened in your life yeah. and the mistakes we've made. So so what was it like, you know, standing in federal court with your children and your husband behind you? What what was that that was that like? That was you know, I, I remember
2: when I walked in the courtroom this feeling of, uh, cause it's very sterile in a courtroom, you know, mm-hmm. we're all walking in together as a family. And then I walk up alone and sit in my seat and my husband and my kids are behind me. And I remember this feeling of, they're so far away. Like, how am I ever going to get back to my family? It was just like yeah. in a very real way, I could see that I was now separated by this event from my family. Mm-hmm. And I just I actually just started to cry because I could feel the weight of my situation. And, and at that point I knew that I had, I think the denial kind of slips away. You know, I could see that I had made some terrible choices and that I was going to spend some time in prison and that my life would never be the same. I think it was almost like a death to me to walk in that courtroom and it it was painful. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So what, what happened when you heard the judge say the United States versus Portia Louder? That's something else I read about you. That that always yeah. to me has also been a very mo- interesting moment when I sit in trial and I hear the United yeah. States versus da da or the state of California. So uh, what, right. what was that?
2: Well, from my point of view, I thought, what chance do I have against the United States of America? Like my whole country is against me. It was just a surreal feeling like, how did I get here when the United States of America versus Portia Lauder? It's just like, what happened? You know, it, it's a very lonely. I, I remember feeling like I am the worst person. That's just what I felt. I just thought I am the worst person. Like, I don't know. I, I think it was partially the denial that I was in prior to that experience. Mm-hmm. And then just the gravity of it and seeing my family, it was, it was a really painful experience for me.
1: Yeah, I'm just—I I bet that I, we're going to talk about how you've tried to work on healing that in a minute, but I would imagine that it's got to be just an overwhelming, overwhelming feeling when you know you've done something wrong, but you've got such a mass behind you. Because I always thought it was very interesting yeah. when you know you're in trial and you have everybody's tax dollars against you, right? You have tax dollars that are going to pay for them to take the case as far as they do. You only have so much money. I've seen this happen in multiple cases I've worked on, and how can yeah. you? stack up against the United States of America tax dollars. There's no end to that, you know, in a way. And that's right. got to be a very overwhelming feeling. Did you ever feel from a financial perspective that way?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I had attorneys telling me, well, if we could do this, if we could do this, if we could audit all your financials, if we, you know, and that, how much is that going to be? Oh, that'll be 150000 And just throwing out these numbers, and I'm like, I have no, no chance. chance, you know? No
1: yeah. yeah, no sweet. chance. So, you know, when you Um, We're talking about the courtroom being so sterile, it made it more serious. What about it being sterile felt serious to you versus it being not so sterile?
2: Well, I just think there's no humanity. Like, it just didn't feel human at all. Mm. Um, You know, I had a really good kind of a counselor friend who was trying to, who had been through a courtroom experience as a witness and was Who really loved and cared for me and was trying to explain to me that it didn't matter who I was. It didn't matter if I, you know, if I loved my children. It didn't matter any of the good things I've done. None of that matters, Portia. You need to understand. But I didn't know until I walked in. And then it just felt completely sterile. There's no Mm -hmm. humanity there. It wasn't like anyone cared, you know? Mm -hmm. It just felt really, yeah, very alone.
1: There's not a lot of feeling around the law right there's no. no emotion there's no feeling yeah. it's the law right. and that's always such a hard place for people to understand that there is yeah. no emotion when it comes to the law you can't you know for someone to get upset on the stand yeah. it makes them look weak it's your lawyer yeah. can't get upset if they get angry it makes them look like they're you know bullying and it's like there's this big gap between any kind of emotion and you know and I also was, was reading too where you were, or I listened to a podcast you were on or something that, you know, you weren't understanding the terminology like money laundering and, you know, you didn't even know oh, yeah. these terms. Like, did they not explain this to you? Because I, I know these terms are not, I mean, I've actually in, like on the Enron trial, I did graphics to, uh, to explain what conspiracy really means. What does money laundering mean? So for a person to be in that situation, did they even try to explain to you what the count was? You know, I had
2: an attorney early on in my case come in because I was working with a real estate attorney before I was indicted to have him review what I was doing. And he brought in a lawyer to explain if they were investigating me. I didn't know yet I was under investigation, but I'd heard. And this is kind of what it is. But I think what was really a mind blower for me, was, and this is, you know, post my sentence, but I was sitting in prison in a class and he's like, Well, tell me about your charge. And I said, Money laundering, wire fraud, mail fraud. And I started 19 counts and I knew the words, but he goes, Well, the way you sound, you sound like a crime boss. He goes, So what did you do? Right. And I said, yeah. I said, Well, I bought and sold real estate and I beefed up the values. And he goes, Okay. He's like, okay, let's get back to it. And I think those terms, money laundering, wire fraud, mail fraud, yeah, they're all just the way that they legally come in and indict a misrepresentation on a loan app, right? But right. it's much easier to explain a misrepresentation on a loan app. So even the terminology in the courtroom to the layman, to a person that's under investigation, or even to a victim,
1: is it's like overwhelming. Right. You know? Right. It's legal, it's the legal, legal side of it where that's, that's always been kind of the hard part of my job is how to explain that legalese to someone in a more, you know, street friendly way of, you know, just education in a, in a sense, because you're right. You say when, when I hear you said, you know, I was reading to you in 19 counts. I mean, to most people that's going to be like, my God, she must've done something really horrendous, you oh, know, and, right? and I'm not saying you didn't, I, I'm not, not saying that what yeah. you didn't do was wrong. I'm just saying that. For most people to understand that process and what those counts mean compared to the, the, you know, you made, because a lot of people doing the act don't understand that it falls under a legal arena. So there is this great 19 areas of gray, but then there's 19 areas of crossing the line, right? So how did you even get past the fact that when they put these counts out for you to like, what does it mean? Like, how, how did you get past that? Or did you just have to let that go and give it to your lawyer?
2: You know, I knew what I did. So I knew what I did and I remember one lawyer saying, "You're in a very unfortunate situation because you're going to lose no matter what." <laughs> he's like, "If you you're want to win
1: it basically, trial, right?"
2: Uh, well, yeah, and he's like it wouldn't even matter if you won at trial, you're still losing. He said because of what it's going to cost you, your marriage There's two, and he's like, if they don't get you on this, they can get you on this. There's just, they could probably get any of us if they chose to come in and look close enough, like you're, you're, yeah. So, and then he'd say, it's not personal. And I'm like, but it is personal. It's me. It's personal. It's not personal to them. It's just what they do. And I'm like, it's so, which I needed to make it not personal as well, but I didn't know how to do that,
1: you know? Well, the, the law is, that's the hard part with the law. It is it's your choices, which we're going to talk about here in a second, but it's the choices we make, where does it cross the line? And what we talked about earlier as well is like, where do we know where those lines are? And sometimes, you know, do we, are, are we in the gray area? Are we not, you know, and you're right. If everybody looked at everything in, under the microscope, I'm sure there's a lot of us that are breaking the law, but yet again, where's the intent and, you know, where are we going with that? So, so let's talk a little bit about your transformation. So you went to to trial. You spent five and a half, almost five and a half years, I guess, in for your sentencing.
2: I spent, so I was sentenced to seven years, about five years. I got the RDAP year for doing a program while I was in prison, and then I got good time. And I think for me, it took a while and I, of observing my situation, myself mm-hmm. and others. And I realized that First of all, I realized that there were a whole lot of people in prison worse off than me who had had a much more difficult life than I had and who may not have had the, you know, even really the moral compass that I had growing up. So it's like, you know, I guess I thought I don't belong here. I am not. I mean, I made some mistakes, but my whole life in my mind, if you go to prison, you're just a really bad person before Mm -hmm. I went to prison, (laughs) which makes it really hard because then you can't go there because that makes you a really bad person. But when I got there and realized there were so many others who were struggling um, in ways I hadn't, then I realized actually I might be worse than all of them <laughs> because I had I had supportive family and upbringing. Right. I knew better, and I still chose this. That was kind of my first awakening. And then I I started to wonder how I could not stay stuck because this me focusing on the things that were unfair about my situation were keeping me stuck. Hmm. And I wanted, that I have this time. I need to leave with something with the, you know, this time has to mean something. And if I just come out and think that I've been done dirty, will I, will I have, what will I have learned? Well, you know, how will I be any different? And so I started that journey of self-discovery trying to figure out where I had failed. And that's a painful process. Because in a way, it's like, okay, my 50 years on this planet or 43, 44 years on this planet now, what do they really mean? A big chunk mm-hmm. of that was spent going the wrong direction. Can I accept that and start over, you know?
1: Mm. Wow, that's powerful. Because, you know, there, there has to be a moment of, of choice, right? There's a moment of, can you describe almost, I mean, sometimes maybe it's not just a moment, it might be a little period of time. But can you kind of describe that moment you realized did this I need to change my life I want to change my life can is that something that came yeah. from your heart that versus your head that, like can you explain where
2: it was both yeah um it was a, a few different things one was that I was just in so much pain and I remember my children coming out to see me I hadn't seen them for a long time like a year so mm-hmm. and they had grown like six months or six inches because I had teenagers 12 and 14 that were growing And my son was angry and he said, the principal had called him out on something. Well, the principal had said, I just don't want to see you go down the same path your mom went down. And Mm -hmm. my, yeah. So my son told him to F off and it was a big, bad thing. And, and when he said that, I looked at him and I said, but Jackson, I don't want you to go down the same path I went down either. I don't want you to end up in prison. And then I said, you do realize your principal didn't do this to you. I did you realize it wasn't the cops. It wasn't the FBI. Nobody did this, but me. It was me. I'm here because of the choices I made. And I think that my desire for my children to not feel victimized by the system, I didn't want them to grow up feeling like the system had done them wrong, was a big motivating factor. It was really painful though. I remember Mm. uh, days and days of just being really brokenhearted about the fact that my kids were struggling that I had Mm -hmm. made these choices. That was a turning point. I also remember seeing a woman um, who stood up and was so courageous and admitted openly all the things that she had done to get herself in prison. Nobody else did that. Like we were in a therapy group. Everyone else was kind of glazing over it, but she just came in with such power. And when she got done, I thought that was powerful. So I would observe what wasn't working for people and what was. And I thought, I'm going to do that. You know, I'm going to do that. So I watched and I learned.
1: Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, because I read to you that you said, uh, as soon as you accept those choices and their impact, then you have the freedom to make better choices, to be completely freed from everyone, everyone else's actions, behaviors, and own your own. Nothing that you want to have in your future is dependent on anybody else's behavior. That was just so powerful for me. I just, I love that so much. Yeah. Yeah. That's really great. Yeah. So, you know, let's talk about too, like, you know, let's talk about regret. Do you have regret? (sighs) Wow. Like that's a
2: hard question because my view of life is so different. I mean, there's, I wish I could have learned everything I learned sooner, you know, right. I, wish I yeah. could have learned
1: all I do. I do.
2: <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you just don't want to, I wish I could have learned it sooner because, you know, it's, it's all perspective. I, I was recently speaking at a book club and these gals, cute little Greek women, um, they, they're part of this little Greek Catholic parish and they invited me to their book club and they're like in their sixties and maybe early seventies. And one of them said, how old are you, honey? And I said, I'm 52 and she goes, Enjoy your youth. (laughs) And I thought, my youth? You know, I feel like my youth I kind of gave away because I was making all these dumb choices. But in reality, you know, I'm really grateful that I found it now and that I have the rest of my life ahead of Mm me. And, you know, I was able to see meet people from all different cultures and faiths and walks of life. I think that was really powerful for me. I think also. I just have a different appreciation for all things. You know, my life is not driven by money, not even close. My connection, my ability to connect, like just getting away from a cell phone for four and a half years, like what kind of a gift is that? you know? Wow. So I mean, yeah. Yeah, I got the experience, but I, I mean, my regret is that I hurt people. My regret is especially, you know, I, I regret that my integrity was weak. I regret that um, I was part of the problem in this country, the financial problems. Uh, I regret the example that I was and the, I was persuasive. So other people got involved in things, all of those things. I regret, I regret that I put myself in a position to sit in a courtroom and be me against the government. Cause I love my country. I don't, I mean, I don't agree with everything, but I know how blessed we are in this country. So mm-hmm. those things, I regret. but I'm so glad that I, you know, I've had people say other people got away with it. And I, and I always say nobody gets away with anything. You know, nobody does. They still have to live with what they did, whether they right. go to prison or not. And right. I got to face what I did and move through it and start to make things right. And I may not have gotten that opportunity had I not had the government come in. Wow! So
1: that's uh, that's that's as I like to go back to my phrase, purpose in the pain, for sure, because it's it sounds like you went into prison. One person came out as another. And it seems to be kind of a common story with a lot of people. Do you think it's because you are stripped of so much that you have, don't have distraction? You really have to look at your, your, emotional self, your mental self, your, yourself, just in every way possible. I mean, what what do you think that is such a common story?
2: Yeah, I think that having those things stripped away can be such a gift. You know, at to take that time for yourself. Not everybody uses it. Not everybody in prison takes that opportunity, but I met a lot of them that did. And it, you know, numerous people that have told me the best thing that ever happened to me was prison. I would never undo prisons. I think prisons are not just necessary, also compassionate for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. It gives them what they need to heal. And it's the time that a lot of people didn't get as children to grow up and, you know, there's lots of things about prison that I think are beneficial, but for me, um, I do, I don't know that I needed time and not just a little bit. I needed the time I got to really reflect and have that, all the craziness taken away for a while to really go internal and figure out who I was.
1: Wow, Wow, that's pretty powerful. So. Can you talk about, so the healing process, So you, you serve your time and how have you, what have you done to heal from owning your mistakes, reformulating your life, you know, obviously writing your book, but, but from a healing perspective with along yeah. with your children, how have you worked with your children, your husband? I mean, how, how, what's the healing process like for you? Yeah. So in prison, I got the time
2: to for my internal self. I got good at taking care of myself. A lot of meditation, a lot of nature and silence and connecting without all the technology. And then, you know, and also a big part of it was ownership, accountability. Um, I started writing letters to my children, asking them to tell me how I hurt them. My community, people that may have been harmed by me, asking them, tell me how I hurt you so that I could understand and kind of make things right with them to the best of my ability because that takes time to I get these opportunities that come up since I got home. I think the biggest the biggest thing is you've got to be open and willing to heal that way. And then mm-hmm. the universe provides those opportunities. Like I get home, one daughter says, "You are not my mother. You didn't raise me. I want nothing to do with you." And my her, she was 17 at the time and I said, "I totally understand where you are." but you still have to go to school this morning. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's like, right. it's that fine line of allow her to feel how she feels, but I still have to hold those boundaries to help her grow and become her best self. So, cause I think it's hard when you've screwed up as a parent to think, well, I got to let them get away with all these things, which won't help them in the end. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Uh, we're in it four years. I've been home four years and it is a, a process of me showing up, keeping my word, being open emotionally for them to tell me how they feel. And then I just know it's a long game. Like I learned mm-hmm. about in prison, there's no quick fixes to this stuff. It is a long game and the journey's beautiful, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah. Wow. As far as me, like when I got out, you know, I was very money driven, um, was a photographer and business owner, and got into real estate and other ventures. Since I got home, you know, most of my focus has been on meaning and serving and connection. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, do ha- I, just, I do what feels right, and,
1: and that's just served me well so far. Wow, that's great. That's, uh, you know, we're going to kind of close up here, but, you know, I usually ask my guest, is healing a choice? But today my question's a little different for you. Is raw honesty about your flaws a choice
2: raw honesty about your it's not only a choice but it's a powerful choice it's a powerful choice and in any situation it will set you free
1: yeah wow perfect that's really way great way to say it because it is it's a tough choice it's a very tough choice to be really look at yourself and look at your flaws and mistakes you've made in your life And I love one of the quotes I saw, um, actually, I think somewhere along the line with your book, it says, those who have a why can bear almost any how. How, Why did you choose that quote? I thought that was a beautiful quote.
2: Yeah, I think that when you know what you're fighting for, you can fight through about anything, you know, know what's at stake when you understand the best version of yourself is at stake, when you understand you can walk through the hardest things when you have a reason to do it. And so, yeah. yeah. Where can people find your book, Portia? Um, It's on Amazon. Yeah, I have a website, portialauder.com too, but I write things on social media and just connect anywhere I can. But yeah.
1: Okay. Well, you know, it says uh, a lot about a person to fall on their sword in public. I really do believe that. So I want to thank you so much for coming and talking to me today because the world is not perfect. We are not perfect. We're humans but it's what we do with it, right? That's what we, how we make the most of it when we do make our mistakes. And I give you a lot of credit. So thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Julia. I appreciate the time. Yeah, it's really been great. So, all right, everyone. So if you know somebody who wants to share their story, please reach out to me at info at com. And just remember, we all, we all have our things. We all have our stuff, you know, we all have our history allows us to make mistakes, but yet it's what we do with those mistakes. So, uh, just make sure we go out and spread some love and come back and uh, talk to you again soon. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. If you want to share your experience as a witness, please forward your information to info at juliethuck.com. For more information on Juliet's 30 year career in the courtroom, visit us at juliethuck.com. There you can find her books, The Equation of Persuasion, and 50 Ways to Get Your Way, available on Amazon. Remember to follow and subscribe to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation wherever you listen to podcasts.